The Office of Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development is boosting efforts to end sexual abuse and unsanitary conditions in HUD-backed housing. For details, Inspector General Ray Oliver-Davis. Ms. Oliver-Davis, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. And you're doing a couple of things here. Let's start with the sexual abuse. There was a horrifying case in public housing that the Justice Department just took care of. Tell us what happened, and is that, in your sense, emblematic of what can happen in public housing? Sure. Thank you for that question. We opened that matter in May of 2018, and it started out with just one agent and one victim. And we zeroed in on a New Jersey landlord. He had been receiving about $1.2 million in Housing Choice Voucher uh, HUD assistance annually. And what we discovered were allegations spanning about 15 years, allegations that included quid pro quos, uh, sexual contact, for rental assistance. You know, if you do this, you can stay here. If you don't do this, you might be evicted, those sorts of things. Pretty horrible conduct. We did work that with the New Jersey U.S. Attorney's Office. You mentioned that, and they charged him in August of 2020. Then in March of 2021, the local New Jersey Union County prosecutors charged him with multiple counts of sexual assault and and criminal sexual conduct. So we had a number of things going on there. This resulted in a settlement, though, in about December of 2021 for $4.5 million. It was the biggest settlement DOJ had had of this kind with this particular kind of conduct. About $4.3 million, Tom, went back to the victims. And the big thing here for my agency is that this individual had to sell all of his properties. He had hundreds of units. He had to vest himself of all of that. And he had to agree not to be a residential property landlord going forward. All right. So that was a particularly egregious case. But do you have the sense that it's not the only one? Absolutely. And unfortunately, we do not believe it's the only one. It's hard to put numbers on these things, I think, precisely because it's difficult for people to come forward. And I think maybe until now, HUD beneficiaries who had suffered at the hands of this kind of misconduct didn't even know that there was any kind of recourse or that it was a crime or a violation of the Fair Housing Act. So that's something we're really trying to do is get awareness out to the public on this. But when we talk to HUD, when we talk to DOJ, when we talk to the locals, we all get a sense that this is unfortunately quite pervasive. You know, I said that that last case started with one victim, but sometimes we get up to 60 victims. So it's out there. It's a thing. So we're really trying to combat this terrible conduct. And what are you doing from the IG standpoint to help combat this? We are partnering with just about everyone. There's something here for all of government. It's kind of a whole of government approach, all hands on deck. For us, working with our DOJ partners, getting bad actors out of the program, that's what we do best. That's what we want to do here. You know, each of these victims could potentially also have a fair housing claim. They have to bring that within a year. So we definitely make sure they're on that path to filing that with the department. That's something HUD can do. We work with the state and locals on these misconduct, criminal sexual conduct cases. And frankly, these start out, they can almost be a he said, she said sort of thing. But by the time we investigate them and we've got 60 victims, we really boost the state case against these bad actors as well. We also are driving complaints to our hotline. Like I said, right now, we fear that we have people that don't even know that this is a crime or something they can do anything about. So we're really trying to get the word out that way. And you have some public service ads running too, right? We do. We have some public service ads running. There's a video of me hopefully educating people about what to look for. You know, if your maintenance worker said this to you, if your landlord did this, just really educating potential victims on the conduct that we're aiming to target. And what about the HUD housing program offices themselves that actually do the payouts, certify the landlords and run these programs? 
Well, certainly that's a good question. And we're always looking to do oversight there. And this really is something where if we can get a conviction, if we can get a settlement like we had in the New Jersey case, we would then refer them for disbarment. So they wouldn't be able to participate in any HUD or government programs going forward. That's something we would work together with HUD to do. We're speaking with Ray Oliver Davis. She is Inspector General of Housing and Urban Development. And let me ask you about the other matter that you are concentrating on, and that is substandard conditions. I guess there's still lead paint even this many years after no lead paint, you know, in the market and other problems with housing that are physical in nature and make for unsanitary, unhealthy conditions. What's the extent of that and what are you doing about it? Well, Tom, you hit the nail on the head and you listen to the news like I do. We hear every day about landlords who don't hold up their end of the bargain. They get the housing assistance payments, but they're not providing safe, sanitary housing. It's a big problem. Housing stock is old. There's a capital needs backlog. I think you and I have talked about this before that contributes to the problem. The age of the housing stock contributes to the fact that there still could be lead in the property. So there's a lot to do here. We are using our entire toolkit to really look at unit conditions on every level. You know, we're certainly looking at HUD oversight of the department itself. We're looking at the inspection process. You know, you and I, I think have talked about the REAC inspection process before. That's the main tool for looking at unit conditions. It's been flawed for a while. It's pretty complex. You know, HUD has been looking to revamp it with new standards. There was a bit of a backlog during the pandemic. So we're doing oversight there. We're seeing how that implementation of the new standards are going and have they really been able to attack the backlog and look at unit conditions in a timely manner. We're looking at RAD conversions. You know, that's been the department's answer to aging public housing stock, you know, give them access to equity and perhaps the conditions will improve. We're going to look at are the conditions actually improving in certain rental assistance demonstration properties. We're also looking at emergency health and safety issues. You know, the timeline there is usually 24 hours to address those. We're looking to see if HUD's doing proper oversight of that. And then we're doing targeted reviews beyond the HUD and program level, and we're looking at entities. You know, we see all the time HUD will finally abate a contract and basically have a landlord exit the program, and they have to relocate tenants. So we're doing some target reviews there as well. And you mentioned lead. Absolutely. We're looking at lead from the HUD perspective. Does HUD have a plan for holding PHAs accountable? Are they making sure the lead safe housing rule is being enforced? And then we're looking at high-risk properties. You know, we were looking at the Philadelphia Public Housing Authority. We just did an audit there where we found they didn't have any documentation whatsoever pre-2019 on lead disclosures. So we couldn't say for sure whether tenants were even being notified there were lead in the property. So for us, the big takeaway here is if you don't have the right controls at the program level, at the partnership level, so the participant level, then that leaves you vulnerable to bad actors. So that's where we come in too. That's another part of our toolkit. You know, we just had a case in Indiana where a contractor took uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in exchange for doing repairs and renovations, didn't ensure that any of that was done with lead safe practices in mind. And we already had a child in that unit with lead blood poisoning. So we're doing things like that as well. Do you also look into the finances of operators of this housing to understand, you know, is what they're getting sufficient? Is there money left over? Do they put away capital expenditures such that they can maintain the properties? Because often rent-controlled types of properties tend to be often the least cared for. 
That is something we've been discussing every day, Tom, and it's a really good question. For instance, like I mentioned a property in Pepper Tree right now where we're doing some research, so we haven't actually opened anything there, but we're looking at what happened there. You know, we have properties that just aren't being maintained, so what's happening to the funding around that? And we're looking at how is HUD overseeing that as well? Are they looking at the financials? You know, so often with these RAD conversions, they have to put forward a financial plan. So what happens there? How is that successful? How is it not? A RAD conversion means what? Rental assistance demonstration. demonstration. Well, it's really complex. Uh, there are many different avenues for RAD, but essentially it's the answer to this capital needs backlog in public housing. So it can be a public housing authority that wants to convert to RAD. There are other properties that convert to RAD too, but essentially it's the answer to getting the properties back in better shape and better condition. It doesn't turn them into condos or anything like that. I am not aware of it turning them into condos, <laughs> right. but we, like I said, it's really complex and there are many different avenues. All right. And while the IG is doing all of this investigative work, again, I have to ask, where are the housing program people sure. in Maine sure. HUD, you know, outside of the IG's office, but in, in the HUD program offices? No, these are good questions. And, you know, and I've cited several examples of our oversight of HUD in these areas. And, you know, a couple things. First of all, like we just partnered with HUD. We did a civil remedy against a landlord for $1.2 million. That's a good partnership for us to do with HUD. I want to see more of that. I want to push for more of that. We're going to commit those resources. I have to say there are areas where HUD's tool could improve. Lead compliance, you know, I've, I cited several examples there. We really want them to be able to track lead in the housing authorities. But to be fair, Tom, there's 3,300 housing authorities. So we have to talk about the capacity of HUD. In order to carry out their mission, they have to deal with tens of thousands of partnerships. And they have to do oversight of those partnerships. So we have to acknowledge there's a capacity issue there as well. There's some areas where I should point out HUD's made progress. You know, when, it, when we talk about lead and hazards, that's not the only hazard. We have contaminated sites. We've done work around that before. They have a plan in place now to assess properties who are close to contaminated sites and do environmental reviews. That's because of our recommendations and our work. They're very close to a departmental-wide policy on radon, something that would address testing and mitigation where they find radon. That's also part of one of our evaluations. So there's some areas where they've made strides, certainly. And I guess just getting back to the lead paint, because it's emblematic of this, the fact that you know, lead paint was banned, I think, more than 40 years ago. That's testimony to the age of a lot of the public housing. And if there is still lead paint there, that attests to the lack of capital investment in it if you still have window panes and window sills that have lead paint on them. That's right. That's absolutely right. We find that lead dust, lead paint chips, is definitely one of the vulnerabilities when it comes to having children in public housing, yes, and the old stock, certainly. And then you're also getting some wind in the sails from Congress, it looks like, for these efforts. There was a hearing not long ago. Oh, absolutely. Yes, they did a hearing. And we get questions from our congressional stakeholders all the time about this. I just had a hearing on the Hill in advance of the secretary's budget hearing, and I got questions about these issues. Yes, all these initiatives. So it's ongoing, no end really in sight. You know, we're going to keep putting resources to it. You know, one of the things we hope to see, especially in the sexual misconduct area, is deterrence. You know, that's a win for us, too. You know, I think initially with these PSAs and this focus, we hope to see more complaints, uh, more people coming forward because we want to raise awareness where maybe there hasn't been. But in the long run, we'll be doing data analytics. We'll be seeing where to commit our resources. But deterrence is also a win for us, definitely, especially in the sexual harassment arena. And by the way, do you ever do site visits 
We do. That's an important part of the process. A few years ago, we did kind of a systematic review in certain cities of housing conditions. I mentioned a few audits that were in the process of launching. Those will be boots on the ground. When I say we're going to look at the unit conditions, we're going to go out and look at the unit conditions. That's definitely what we're going to do. Now, we don't do the inspections. You know, that is a HUD, REAC, Inspire inspection process. That's not us, but certainly in conjunction with our oversight work, being on site, seeing what there is to see, talking to people is certainly very important. Ray Oliver Davis is Inspector General of Housing and Urban Development. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate you uh, spotlighting this issue. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about her efforts at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look in Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look in Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look in Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. 
it's an amazing story. And two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it, and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept 
me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.